Hey there, listener. I want to thank you for listening to the National Land Realty Podcast. Now, please remember to like, share, and review our show. If you can, take a second, hit pause, and give us a quick review. It only takes about a minute to write what you think about the content that you hear on this show. Good or bad, we want to hear it. Thank you in advance. Now on with the show. Episode number 26 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, we'll be talking with land professional Wayne Dunson out of West Texas. Wayne has a problem that many people have. That problem is a surplus of predators on his land. Wayne is an experienced land professional, but land takes every opportunity it can to throw you a curveball. For Wayne, that curveball came in the form of Canis latrans, better known as coyotes. Through trial and error, research, and good old hard work, Wayne has learned how to manage his predators with traps, snares, and various techniques for both. Not only is Wayne Dunson a wonderful storyteller, but his lessons will help you with your predator problems. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. I am sitting here with Wayne Dunson. Um, Wayne, why don't you tell us a little bit, you're an agent with National Land Realty, and I want you just to tell me a little bit how you got started, how you got here, and sort of what your background was with, with land or just working with land. Okay, so I went to school um, in range of wildlife management uh, to become a range specialist for USDA. Believe it or not, I actually catered my degree for that one job. So when I got out of grad school, I did go to work uh, and worked across a good chunk of Texas as a rangeland management specialist. Uh, I ended up leaving that career and going full-time in real estate. I was already licensed, so it was easy to transition over to that because my family had a small residential business. So I've been doing that full-time since 2008 and uh, eventually got the itch to add a little more passion into my real estate career, right? I wanted to focus more on some things that I really enjoyed that I left behind with my old career. So uh, I started digging around and searching and uh, I found national land and uh, it was the right fit for me. And I, it was immediately, I dove in head first. Excellent. And so you're in your area that you work in, you, you say West Texas, but I, I'm looking at that like Texas is one of the biggest states in the country. Do you have a particular region that you primarily work in? I do. So my office is based in Odessa Midland area, which they call the Permian Basin, which is kind of a heavy oil and gas area, right where the panhandle comes down and then bends back uh, to the west. And so I kind of cover an area that goes from here over towards San Angelo, down to Ozona, over to Abilene. There's kind of a, I would almost call it like West Central Texas. So it's sort of where the desert starts changing into either the Edwards Plateau or the Rolling Plains or even the High Plains if you head north. How much, how, how long typically will you drive for, for a listing when you're working with somebody to get out there? What's, what's sort of a standard, like I drive this far in a, in a day? It's to the point right now, I, and don't get me wrong, I could stretch it out easily to a much further distance right now. I've chosen to keep myself 
within a two hour distance. That's kind of my main two to two and a half. And it's really common for me to drive anywhere from an hour and a half to over two just to get to where I'm going. Uh, and, and why is that? That's just where, from where I live, that's where most of the, I guess you'd say, more popular land is for recreational use, hunting, whatever. It's just prettier to look at, more game. Gotcha. Yeah, that was just out of curiosity because, again, I'm thinking, you know, West Texas is like the size of most of the other states in the country. So I'm like, oh, that's huge. So how far are you driving in a given day? Because it's it's got to be a ways. And just just given the fact that you work with land or any land agent is going to end up putting a lot of hours in driving just to get where just to get where they need to go because you know it's spread out right oh absolutely if i wanted to and i probably will and if the opportunity came up i would i'm working on some solar deals right now that are at least three and a half hours away from me right now um you know and if you look at four i could almost be to el paso you know i mean i could go the opposite direction and be there in about four so i can definitely cover a lot of territory if i choose to do so it's it's not hard to do out here for sure Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to kind of hear about that. There's a lot of, what did everybody say? Windshield time, a lot of windshield time involved in the job. Uh, so yeah, so we're here, we're here today to talk about uh, maintaining land for, for wildlife habitat, particularly as it concerns predators on land. And, and I know that you've had a lot of experience in this area. So I, I wondered if you could just tell me about, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit before about the, the land that you're working with right now, your own land. You said about 300 acres that you kind of got inundated with predators and have had to come up with solutions for that. So I wondered if you could talk me through that just a little bit so we could kind of get the get the scenario and then we can jump into like how you've dealt with that. Sure. Okay. so we have a family place and um, for for typical. So we started out with it was just a raw piece of land. And to improve it for wildlife and for livestock, um, we did a bunch of brush clearing. Uh, we did range reseeding. Uh, we added extra water by putting in a solar well and running pipeline to put more water troughs out there. One was to spread out grazing distribution. The other one was to provide more water for wildlife. But by opening up that country, you know, it benefits nesting for turkeys, but it also gives more cover edge effect for the wildlife. And it also, we did some work to kind of help benefit the quail. And at the same time, that benefits the, the livestock, too, because there's more open country that we can grow grass for grazing. Uh, and we did some of that, too, because of wild hogs. And a lot of people don't think of them as a predator, but they will destroy anything in their path. And we had some really, really dense bottom country that we wanted to clean up uh, to make that a little less suitable to become just a massive hog wallow. And so that was kind of the basis for us. Right. We, we did all that work. And of course, we feed year round. Um, we, you know, we keep little corn feeders going all year round and we also feed protein year round. That's a nutritional supplementation program to try to boost nutritional plane for the, for the white-tailed deer. And we've been doing that pretty hardcore. And I noticed one day sitting in a deer stand, uh, as the deer were filtering away from my feeder one night, they crossed a little Creek and I see them come out the other side and there is a coyote in broad daylight running wide open. It looked like something off a TV show where you see like a cheetah chasing an antelope in the Serengeti or something weird, but it was actually coyotes, broad daylight chasing deer. I'd never witnessed that. And I thought maybe that's just purely coincidence. You know, maybe I just got lucky and saw nature happening. 
Um, but we also had not seen any fawns that year. I hadn't put two and two together, but during the fawn crop, when we usually have fawns, we didn't see any. And I hadn't really thought a whole lot about it. Well, then about a month later, I go back and I'm sitting in that same deer stand and I have deer at the feeder and three coyotes come out and immediately go on the offensive and chase all the deer off. And they split up and they're going everywhere. And it's pure mayhem. And I knew right then and there, I had that aha moment that I have a serious predator problem that the coyotes are so emboldened here that they're just going to start chasing deer in broad daylight. It was, uh, it was something to behold for sure. And that's kind of the thing, right? You, you, you work really hard to develop land improvements, which is going to, to bring in game to settle in that area, you know, for cover, for food, for anything like that. And by, by nature of that, by bringing in, you know, essentially prey, you know, you're going to bring in predators too, right? For sure. Yeah. Right. What, what benefits one benefits the other. Uh, when you look at the supply and demand or the food chain, when you increase the wildlife, we'll still follow the predators. Um, I just hadn't considered it. And one small thing I left out there is we put up a new four foot net wire fence and something about that, that we didn't take into account is a full size deer can jump that fence. No problem. But if they have a fawn or a pretty new, uh, baby deer with them, those deer couldn't jump the fence. So while the mothers could easily outrun the, the coyotes and jump the fence, if they had time, those fawns had no way out. I mean, we literally had kind of built a pen for the coyotes to just hunt. And, and, and it was, uh, we started finding their digs where they were digging under the fence to get in. It was, uh, yeah, we, we started putting the pieces of the puzzle together fast. So what was your approach? Like, so you identify the problem, you see that you have, you know, possible predator issue. And, and at this point, you're just seeing, you know, you've seen two incidents where where coyotes are chasing deer in broad daylight which is not typical right like you'll see them you, you might see one once in a while kind of pouncing on a mouse or like cruising across the field but in broad daylight a lot of the times you don't see them running around um i'll see them early in the morning a lot like it, but like in broad day middle of the day you don't it's, it's not very common so so you see that so then what are kind of your next steps? What did, what did you start to do to, to look at like, okay, maybe I've got an issue here. So we realized fast that there was a piece of our management plan that was lacking and that was predator management. Uh, we were doing nothing to address that issue. Uh, obviously that didn't just start, but by building this fence and doing all these things, I think we'd, we had just sort of made it stick out a little more because the counties were obviously already there to a certain degree. Um, so I had to start researching best methods, right? How am I going to try to, to tackle this? I have no idea how to trap. I'm not a trapper. Um, and so I started doing a lot of online research and I did a lot of reading, um, you know, believe it or not, even like extension service here, uh, Texas parks and wildlife. There's a lot of websites and resources that explain a lot about management for predators. Um, and I started watching a lot of videos on YouTube from trappers that share their experiences. Um, so I did a lot of research and figured out one of the easiest methods that we could do was to put out snares uh, on these holes. I mean, basically go and target exactly where the coyotes are coming in and coming out and put snares there. Uh, and it was a very, very targeted approach because we knew that they were actively using these sites to get in and out. So that's where we started was with snares. Oh, wow. So, so you, 
So you went through the whole border of the 300 acres and just found each dig site through the fence and then started snaring those. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I reached out to a neighbor to ask him about the same thing. Turned out, I didn't even know he had two snares on our fence line because we had them. <laughs> they were coming through our place and into his and he's high fence and they've got some really high dollar deer. So, and he goes, yeah, man. Uh, he actually sent me a text and said something like I've trapped 26 coyotes and like six bobcats uh, in the past, like 18 months. And I'm going, why didn't you tell me? Like I would have been on board with trying to help out. I just didn't know how or that they were that bad. Uh, so it turned out that uh, they were really thankful that we were ready to hop on board, uh, board and do the same. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that kind of comes back to something that we, we've had a few conversations with uh, Dr. Grant Woods, you know, the, from GrowingDeer.tv. And, and, you know, he's a sort of a specialist in cultivation with land. And, and you know, he's sort of the he's like the professor of making land OK for deer. And, and so he talks a lot about how one of the primary things that you can do to really help your land is get in touch with your neighbors. And it like, that's, it's one of the, it, you don't think about it because you kind of jump immediately into like, all right, I need to get, I need to get this percentage of protein out there and I need forage for the animals and, and I need cover and I need like, you get in that stuff and, and it can be overlooked. I need to call my neighbors, right? Because if your, if your wildlife management plan doesn't match your neighbors, everything's going to be wonky, right? Like you can't, you can't just buy this island in the middle of nowhere and expect animals to flock to it. Like your neighbors got to be on board too, to, to sort of like help everybody and draw animals in. So that's a really big step. Did you, how, do you guys continue to work together on that kind of stuff? Absolutely. We, uh, we finally, uh, so it was weird. This piece of property had changed land, uh, changed owners, actually both our neighbors on two sides had. So we met one of them for the very first time. And actually met and set some snares um, because I needed a little bit of guidance on how they were doing it as well. Um, so we met up face to face and then um, that's actually sort of started a new relationship. And now anytime they get anything, they text me pictures of it and I do the same for them. And so we kind of keep each other uh, updated on what's going on. It's pretty cool. Awesome. And then so, so, and we talked a little bit before and it sounds like, you didn't just have predators. You had, you had a surplus of, of coyotes and it sounds like your neighbor had already been taking care of some, but you ended up finding out that you had quite a few, right? Oh gosh. More than I would have ever anticipated. So <laughs> I, I guess uh, I was undercutting a little bit there. Yeah. We, we started in, uh, with our, I guess you'd say our trapping program in January of 21. And since that time, to the to the to the T, we've taken out thirty coyotes. Um, I mean, that's the ones that we've caught. There's been a number of times that I've gone and the snares have been knocked down. Um, who knows who did that? But yeah, so we and we've also taken out a bobcat. I don't worry too much about those. But yes, thirty coyotes, and really, we haven't caught a coyote in the last couple of months. So really, you could probably dial that back and say, in the last twenty months, we've taken out thirty coyotes on 320 acres at the same time that our neighbor has also trapped some. So that's an unbelievable figure. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like you're getting close to like 60 animals out there preying on deer within a relatively small acreage. What would you, what would you have estimated, you know, if you were, and I know it's really hard to, to, to sort of gauge that, but what, what would you call your coyote to deer ratio on that land during that time? 
we're looking at right around real close to a, a coyote per 10 acres, which I don't have an official number, but that's right. Even if not a little higher potentially than our deer numbers. I was going to say, it's probably even like you, you probably couldn't be holding more than like 30 deer on that property during that time. Yes, that's- exactly. So we have, it's almost a one-to-one deer to coyote ratio is unbelievable. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, no, it's, it's a bit surprising. But then again, you know, you bring the food in, you know, whatever eats the food is going to come in too. And it's pretty brutal, right? Because you're talking about a whole generation of deer that gets impacted when, when you have that many predators in the area, like you don't get fawns because it's nature and nature is vicious. And if you are slow and young, you are dinner. (laughs) Yes. And, and, you know, it's also impactful for the older mature deer, right? One of the goals for most any deer management plan is to let deer grow to maturity. Uh, Dr. Deer would definitely say the same. And you aren't going to get them to maturity very easily for one on small land holdings. If you and your neighbor aren't on the same page, they're going to shoot them anyway, if they get to three and a half, maybe. But beyond that, if they get to say that five-year-old age and they have an insanely hard rut where they run themselves down to nothing, where they've got zero reserves left, they've burned off all the fat, maybe they get wounded in a fight, they're gimped, they're limping around, they're worn out. And it's in the middle of winter when the rut ends. Well, they stand a much higher likelihood of getting drugged down by a coyote because they just don't have the strength to fight it off anymore. Well, I was going to say that or just the stress of predator engagement could, you know, that could drop a deer pretty fast too. just being that tired and then getting run around and getting moved around by predators like that, you know, that'll make an animal give up. So like, there's a number of things there that can stress your wildlife population. So you do have to get a handle on the predators. Um, so how did you arrive at the conclusion to use snare traps versus anything else? So our situation was unique in that we knew where they were coming in and coming out, right? That was a, that was just a, we went with the, what was the most simple method. Um, I didn't have to learn how to do a whole lot, right? If I can just figure out how to hang a snare, it's really cheap, by the way. Um, snares, if you don't want to make your own, you can buy a dozen for not that much money. And because every time you catch one, they're ruined more or less. Mm. And so I just ordered a couple of dozen of these things and bought all the materials to put those out. And, uh, it was a simple approach, right? So it's an easy to use tool and it's very effective. And it doesn't cost a lot of money, right? And so entry into that platform was just easy for us. Simple, low cost. Anybody can do it. That, that was kind of the thing. Uh, it worked well for us. How many entry points did you find? Like, when, sorry, I got my dog shaking her collar over here. Uh, how, how many uh, entry points did you find right out of the gate? The, the, you know, how many traps did you end up putting out? A half dozen to start with. So we had six immediately put out. That you could identify the hole and like, okay, they got under here. Was there areas that you didn't find when on your initial kind of like run around the perimeter? Yes, there is. And, and I'll be honest, there's some places that we don't, we don't have an easy solution for. So even though we put up this new fence, there's some gates that are somewhat elevated and we have a lot of oil and gas activity where we are. We have a lot of uh, solar and wind. And so there's, uh, there's a ton of easements that run through us and they're all gated. Well, a lot of these gates aren't flush with the ground. And we can't just throw logs underneath those gates 
and expect the people that own those easements to be okay with that every time they open their gate. So there's still a few things that we've yet to really shore up uh, to stop all the entry points, but let's get real. I mean, coyotes are going to get in one way or the other. Um, you know, we put a bunch, a bunch of snares up and the next thing you know, they avoid that. There's some pretty savvy coyotes and I don't know if they figure out those snares or they just know something's not right. They'll just go dig a new hole. Right. And that, and that presents an issue too, because you can't really guess where they're going to dig a hole and you got to wait till you see it. Yeah. That's, it could be anything from, it just doesn't look right to a smell to any number of things. Did, did you consider things like, did you consider things like poison? Did you consider things like, I mean, I'm sure you ran through it, but what was sort of your evaluation on the method that you used? Yeah, we did look at, we tried to explore all options. Um, we just didn't feel like, right. It's not cost effective to put a helicopter in the air and ask them to come shoot just what's on, on, on us because the home range of a coyote typically is going to be bigger than just 320 acres. So we'd almost have to get a group of landowners together to try that technique. Um, we looked at poisons. Well, okay. If you want to get into that, there's some issues there where either you need to be licensed to handle the type of chemicals that are going to be used. There's, uh, limits on what is legal to be used, you know, I mean, you, so Texas Department of Agriculture is going to come down really hard on you. And I've actually sat in on a presentation where a farmer decided he was going to use a chemical called Timic, which is very common around farms to put out and kill some hogs. The problem with that is it persists through the food chain. So then it kills the hogs, it kills the coyotes, it kills the buzzards, it kills everything. And what he didn't account for was that he had a hunter that was shooting those hogs. He didn't like that he was paying to hunt someone's place and the guy was poisoning them. He turned that guy in uh, and, and he suffered the consequences. There's, there's big issues if you get into doing things and you're not doing it legally. I... I've seen, we just had an incident in my neighborhood where we had a big bull elk running through suburbia here in Idaho and uh, they were going to, they were going to tranquilize it. Well, I guess, and it, uh, the validity of it, I'm not sure, but they were saying that the, the tranquilizers that they use will stay in an elk system for a long time and they couldn't turn it loose on the range right away or else a hunter could get it and drank himself and, the, and the, <laughs> dose, the dose that they were using i guess was pretty monumental to where it was like yeah we don't want any hunter eating this it, they didn't want it i, I was talking to fish and get outside of my house i'm like i don't think you guys are going to avoid this it's not like you're gonna you know herd an elk out of here so um they ended up having the tranquilizer but it kind of the same thing where you have to you do when you look at an option like that, it's not just what it does immediately. It's how it impacts everything long-term. And, and there's, there's friendly fire all around for something like that. Something like poison kind of be a big deal. So that's what I was curious if you sort of, if you, if you would examine that possibility or, you know, went that route. Yeah, we did look at it for sure. And we had a trapper come out, uh, a, a government trapper that worked for USDA and, he, he just didn't stick around long enough to really have an impact. And, and that's okay. I mean, he's got a lot of ground to cover. So, um, but we did, we did at least explore trying that. And, you know, we looked at steel traps and I just deployed one for the very first time last week. And in fact, um, because of a unique situation that's developed now where we have coyotes staying on us, they're not going in and out. They're not getting caught in our, our snares. 
but they're there. Um, and so I did put out my first steel trap. The reason I hadn't done that was because of my concern for non-target species stepping on that thing. And I, I just didn't know enough about it. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable using one either. Those things look a little intimidating uh, to, to a newbie like myself. Right, right. Nobody wants to lose a finger incidentally, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I, I have this, I've been around them and have the same concerns. Um, and then you, so you are not just cultivating your land for, for deer. You are also cultivating for turkey, right? Right, yeah. So, so I mean, you, mentioned, you mentioned raccoons, and, and that was actually new to me. I wasn't, I, I didn't realize that raccoons were as big and it's probably really naive of me, but this is just, you know, it's part of the process. Why, why I do these interviews. Um, you know, so you were mentioning the, the raccoon population also was an issue. Yeah. So, you know, uh, raccoons are notorious nest raiders and we have all this country, right. That we've, we've grubbed all the brush out and replanted native grass to have the good vegetation, not only for grazing, but for wildlife and, uh, you know, turkey are ground nesters. And there's probably a lot of people that may not realize that. Maybe they think they nest in a tree or whatever, but they are ground nesters. Um, and we wanted to have a lot of space for that. But if you have a ton of raccoons, and it's kind of what we talked about with propagating deer, bringing in more coyotes because we had more deer. Well, we have these corn feeders and these protein feeders at these feed stations set up and they run year round. Well, raccoons just so happen to love protein. They love corn and they love the fact that we had way more water, right? We got multiple watering stations now. So the, the, the raccoon population has done really, really well. Um, and they're really healthy. And we didn't realize initially that we would be feeding the, the raccoons to the extreme we were. Um, but yeah, they exploded. And, and you know, we started using what's called a dog-proof trap. Again, we had a big concern with setting out a trap that something else could get into. Um, and so we started using what's known as a dog-proof. And the only way that you can trigger these things is you have to have an opposable thumb and reach in and grab, and it will trigger this thing. It's a neat little – it just looks like a tube that sticks in it's the ground. The, it's the, is, is it – I'm imagining it's probably similar to the old uh, the old Boy Scout raccoon trap with uh, with the nail through it that kind of just traps the hand in there. Is that? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. it's got it. It's set up sort of like a mouse trap. Uh, oh, okay. So it does, it does trigger. It's not. It's not because what I'm thinking of is the old school. You drill a hole in the log, put a nail through that kind of thing. So, um, but this is it. It actually activates and performs an action. It does, but they have to stick their hand in the tube. So you put corn or whatever, some kind of attractant down inside the, the tube. They have to stick their hand in there out of curiosity or because they want to get what's in there. When they do and this thing sets, they can't pull their hand back out. And yep. stuck. So it's not a lethal method. They're going to be alive in there. So, I mean, you have to be the one to go and get them and dispatch them. Got to be checking your traps. Got to be getting out there on time so that nothing's really like it. So it's not too ugly of a situation. And there's legality yeah. with that, right? Like if you were trapping, you have to be aware of of sort of the timelines that you need to use. What and in Texas, what do they? Actually, I I can't say that all states have that. So I, that would be my question: is if Texas has that? Yeah. So they do uh, have a time frame, and this was something that even I wasn't aware of um, until recently. Uh, but Texas Parks and Wildlife, when you look in their 
I can't, there's a category for trapping fur bearing animals. And one of their regulations is that you'd be able to check your trap. And I want to believe that, uh, and I need to really look that up again, but I think it said 36 hours that you should yeah, be able yeah, to go back right. and check your traps. Um, I don't know how many people do that. So I'm not going to put a lot of, uh, any additional detail onto that, but if you want to follow the laws, it's at least as it's written by Parks and Wildlife, you should be checking those every 36 hours. Yep. Yep. And that's, and that's definitely a thing, especially, I mean, I know that uh, it's a big thing with commercial trappers is, is that they have to like register when they've checked their traps and everything like that and, and check it within certain periods of time. I know summer, I want to say summer 72 hours, depending on where they are. And then 36 hours is pretty common uh, for, for checking traps. Um, so yeah, so, and that's one of those things where, you know, it's, it was probably overlooked, right? Like, you know, you got, you got food out there and you're trying to get turkeys up there, but you got the dog proof traps, I'm guessing, because you said you're also cultivating quail habitat as well, which, you know, you need, you need, you know, not so thick a brush and you need plentiful food, but you don't want your dog to get trapped in the meantime, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and we have a neighbor beside us, uh, the one that's there now, um, we have, uh, one neighbor opposite the high fence and he's got a couple of sections. Uh, it's like 1260 acres, pretty good place. The, the previous owner, um, was a big time bird dude and he had his dogs and he would bring them out. And that, I just can't even imagine, um, <laughs> if, if I were to be responsible for some guy's dog getting away, and it gets hung in one of our traps. I don't even want to know what that story looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That'd make you feel awful. And then you probably have a really angry neighbor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I would feel bad too. Let's get real. People love their dogs. I love mine. Um, yeah. and, and there's a lot of money that goes into a good bird dog too. So that, that would be a nasty story. I know that. Oh yeah. So, so what would be your recommendation? You know, like, you know, you've gone through this firsthand and it's, it, and it's such a, nothing teaches like firsthand experience, right? And, and so as, as you work with landowners, what would be sort of your advice on approaching, not just examining if they have over predation in a, in an area, but managing that managing predators in their area, what should sort of like their first few steps be in, in how they engage with it? You know, um, knowing what I know now, and I should have known this, right? I guess I just hadn't ever been in a situation where I had to learn the lesson um, because everybody knows that there's coyotes everywhere around here anyway. I mean, we're covered in them. There's coyotes pretty much everywhere. There's a small area of Texas that was traditionally heavy sheep and goat country. And because of the type of livestock that was run at that time, they were more or less eradicated. There were no coyotes in that part of the world. Uh, but they are starting to spread into that. The wool and mohair incentive has gone away. There's a lot less ranchers that are running that type of livestock. And let's get real. There's a lot of change of ownership now where the use of the land is changing. Um, and so they're pretty much anywhere. And probably it, it would be my, I don't know, my thoughts now, if I'm going to be working with somebody and we're looking at a piece of property and they're thinking about getting into this wildlife thing, I'm going to make sure that no matter what it is that they do take part of part of their planning process needs to be for predators because you know there's probably some there and it needs to be managed. Uh, I don't I don't know that there's a property anywhere that probably doesn't have an issue with them to some degree. Yeah, everything from wildlife habitat to ranchers especially like cattle can be low-hanging fruit for any kind of predator out there. 
to, to be able to manage that. I think when you were talking, when we were talking before, I was telling you that there's a lot of ranchers that I grew up around that they had a lot of cattle without tails because the, the coyotes could catch up to them, but not take them down. So they would go for the, the nearest thing they could get. And it, it becomes an issue. Um, so, you know, coming up with a, with a predator management program, what does that look like to sort of, and I, and I'm thinking, you know, any, any rancher that's been in it for a while probably already has kind of a routine and, and people who have been managing land for a long time probably have some kind of a routine, but somebody coming in that maybe is getting their first rec property, right. Or maybe this is their second rec property they're expanding or they're still kind of relatively new. How would you advise that they develop sort of their predator management program? So you could probably look uh, a lot at, you know, for us, it was an easy thing to do the snaring just because of the fact that we had that new fence and we could easily identify where they were. There's a lot of places that don't have uh, net wire fencing. Uh, a lot of our country is strictly barbed wire. We'll shoot anything, especially an old fence. It's only a four strand and they get old and rusty and start sagging. Deer can walk right through them. Right? Anything can just walk under, crawl under, walk through it in some cases. Um, so if, you know, we'd have to identify first what their plan for that ranch was going to be. What are you going to do with this? You know, if you're just going to be doing bird watching, probably not a big deal. Um, but if they've got some real intensive use for wildlife or livestock or both, and in most cases that usually is part of it is the livestock component because they want to get the ag exemption, right? We're talking about owning land. One of the things we're looking at is the cost to operate that place or just to own it, right? Just have it sit there. And the ag exemption here in Texas is a huge knock on keeping your property taxes much more affordable. Like for us, we, we have a cowman and he runs the livestock out there. Um, and, and so that keeps our taxes more affordable and we don't have to mess with it. I'm two hours away. We're talking about livestock and the, the coyotes, you know, going after them. Well, during cabin season, if you've got a cow that's down, especially if she's got breech birth or something going on, man, the coyotes are going to be all over that, especially if you've got too many. And if you're not there to keep an eye on them, you're, you're probably going to run into some loss uh, at some point. And so it just wasn't feasible for us to keep an eye on that. But I think for the, for the, whoever the person is that buying this, buying that property, one thing we talked about was contacting your neighbors, find out what they're doing. See if you can get to know them um, and see if they already have something in place. They may want to contact Texas Parks and Wildlife, right? Maybe get some resources from them. Your local ag extension agent, you may want to call a government trapper there locally. You know, there's a lot of resources that someone could reach out to. And I think there's a lot of that for somebody that buys a piece of property, how often can they get there? You know, it, it's going to be kind of hard to manage on your own if you're only going to show up out there during deer season and then you're gone the rest of the year. Um, and so there's a time aspect of that because you're going to have to put some work in if you're going to be doing some trapping. And if you can't do it on your own, there are people that do that. I actually have a friend that is a trapper. He's also a real estate agent, um, but he traps a huge part of country not far from me. And truth be known, I got a lot of good trapping tips from him because that guy does that. He's being paid by ranchers to go out and trap for them because they don't have the time. Right. And that's, and that's so that's a really good point too. If somebody is looking at their land and how to manage it, it can be intimidating as far as, man, how do I do this? I don't have the time. Like there are people and resources, not, not just privately, right. Where you can, you know, like there's a professional trapper in the area, there's government resources as well. Like, you know, you've already paid for this trapper. 
you know, this is, this is there for you to use. There's opportunity there. Now, you know, any one of those resources can have limited time with you. Like you mentioned too, like with, with the, the government trapper that came out to your area, worked it for a while, but they can't just be on call all the time for, you know, every property in the state, but there are opportunities there to help you manage the land. Um, so when you, when you're sort of identifying sources, you mentioned a few things too, like you did a lot of reading and you used it. We all can become YouTube experts overnight, right? It's, it, that was a pretty useful resource, right? Yeah. So I'll tell you, um, course there's apparently a lot of youtubers um even specifically to texas and i watched a ton a ton a ton of videos of guys that trap some of them pretty hardcore um that do a lot of trapping and so i did watch a lot of youtube videos and why is that important well for me if i'm getting ready to go out and deploy some type of a trap myself and i can pull up a video and i can see exactly how that's supposed to look and then they can share their tips their tricks things that they use to improve their success. Well, then that just saves me from a lot of learning, right? Uh, I don't have to go out and make all of the mistakes, you know? Um, there's gonna be things specific to where I'm at that I'm gonna have to figure out on my own. Um, but there's definitely some things that I picked up by watching videos I would have never known. Uh, you know, so for, for instance, my trapping buddy told me that he boils every one of his traps. That's a very common thing. Um, and then he hangs them outside so that they're not exposed to any type of chemical or any kind of smell. He wants those things to just be purely smelling like nature. I'm not that good. I keep them stored in a bucket. <laughs> I keep them stored in a bucket with all of my trapping tools, uh, but they're inside a barn and there's a chainsaw, there's spray rigs. There's no telling what kind of chemical smells those things are absorbing, but I'm a little bit limited on time. But I will say, uh, you know, once I've hung them out, if they don't get uh, tripped at any point in time in, in a fairly quick amount of time, those, those odors are going to fade. Uh, but I picked up one tool that I learned about on the snaring that a guy uh, preached about and I tried it and I've deployed it myself and it works fantastically. And it's called setting a snare loaded. And you, you can look that up on YouTube. It's kind of hard to say it without being able to visually show it. But when you hang a snare over a hole, or if you're putting that on a trail, because you can put snares on a trail. If you've identified a trail, say it's a funnel where a couple of fences meet or a couple of roads intersect and it's on a field edge or it's next to a water source, you can identify where there's a lot of traffic, especially if you find tracks. And there's a way to put a snare up on a support and it will hold that loop just like as if I was suspending it underneath my fence. And so when you talk about uh, the size of the loop, I use what they call the yin-yang. It's about a nine, 10 inch hole. Stick your thumb and your pinky out like the hang 10 look. And that's how, that's the rough way that I measure my loop when I've hung it. And when you hang a normal loop on a piece of cable, unless you're using something pretty rigid, um, it, it, it hangs, it looks like a teardrop or a raindrop hanging. Um, it's not a perfectly round circle. By putting a kink in that piece of metal cable, then when you hang that again, it's perfectly round. So it makes that loop easier for them to get their head through. Um, and so it helps improve the odds. And, and by the way, that loop hangs there. It also enables, because I use what's called a cam lock. that slides over that cable really easily. And it doesn't take much. You just barely tap that loop 
they fire off and they're going to be hung. And so that increases those odds of having a better success rate. And I mean, let's get real. I caught 30 and I didn't know what I was doing less than two years ago. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you hit, you know, hit it out of the park with what you're saying on using things like, you know, a YouTuber or a search engine or, or, you know, run a Google search or finding even a book like you're, you're taking years off of your learning curve, right? I mean, imagine how much time it takes to figure out how to bend the cord, you know, to get it right, to make the to loop not teardrop and get them to open up a little more or, or to get it to close faster. Those kind of things take years and years and years of knowledge and you can consolidate that and then learn off of that, right? You're just accelerating your learning curve that much faster and those resources are out there. For sure. And, and, you know, and, and I've picked up on, on some other tricks, right? Um, because you do worry about scent, even though I have them all and I have all of my trapping gear in one particular container. I have some like rubber neoprene type gloves that I use to handle them. At worst, I'll use leather. Um, but I try to use those rubber gloves, right? I don't want to lay down too much scent. I've got knee pads. You know, think about it. I mean, for one, it, it saves you from getting muddy but those knee pads stay in my trapping equipment and I put those on. So when I put my knees on the ground, I'm not leaving scent right there. Um, there's so many little things that you can do. I, I've got uh, some coyote urine because I'm actually trying to target specifically coyotes. So I will spray some pretty high dollar coyote urine that I've bought and I'll spray uh, right on the top of the wire where I've suspended that snare right even out of curiosity they may stop poke their head through just trying to smell around that thing uh there's a lot of interesting ways that you can try to improve success right no that's that's something i would not have thought of but it makes total sense as far as like you know any other any other species like using urine is always an attractant you know to, to get stuff in um Awesome. Well, hey, Wayne, um, you know, I, I had you here for uh, for an hour and I don't want to like kill off all your day. I know that you've got clients to see and uh, and land to go tour. Um, but how, how would somebody get a hold of you in your area uh, if they're looking at, you know, and, and for that matter, what kind of li listings do you specialize in uh, if you have a niche market that you work with? So, I mean, you can just go to nationalland.com if you wanted to look us up on the website, right, you can pick the state, you can go to Texas and you can look up the, the agents and brokers. We're all listed there. All of our contact information will be on the website. Super easy to find. Um, they can always reach out to me direct on my cell phone. I mean, I live on my cell. Um, even if it's just a text, um, hit me on my cell. You know, they can email me. My email is also on the website. Um, there's, I mean, we want to be available right to you and we don't want to make it obscure. It's not like our numbers got to be passed down through some secret handshake. We want to be available to everybody at all times. Um, about the only time I don't answer is usually cause I don't have service. Um, and as far as niche market where I'm at, I think it's just been by default that a lot of the people that buy country here, um, at least in the general vicinity that I work, it's, it's more recreational. Uh, these buyers are doing it for two things. One, they want to have their own piece of land, right? It's a great investment. It's always going to be a great investment. People want their own piece of land. Uh, and you can't go wrong with that. But a lot of the guys that I get are buying it really uh, because they want to have a place to go and enjoy themselves and do a little bit of hunting, maybe put some of their own cows out there. 
So it's been traditionally people that are involved in hunting. I have a few livestock guys that are just trying to expand their operation. Uh, but by and large, a majority of what I've been dealing with has been recreational, you know, guys that want to hunt. Um, a few people that buy simply for investment purposes only, just a place to park some cash um, or the livestock guy. So that's kind of been a majority of what I've done. Now, don't get me wrong. I deal in solar. We deal in wind. Uh, there's a lot of things. I've really been heavy in the solar lately. Um, and the good thing is, since we work with Landgate, uh, well, I can really tell you fast if what you've got is going to fit one of those markets too. Yeah. And that's a situation where you have land and you can offer to lease it to a solar company to set up a solar array, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So if they've got the right property and, uh, we can look at where they're at, where that property situated in, in terms of, uh, the surrounding infrastructure that's needed to support that type of, uh, uh operation and the size of their property. There's a lot of determining factors that dictate whether or not a place might be of interest for something like a solar uh, solar field or, or even a wind farm for that matter. Um, you know, I'm heavy in oil and gas where I'm at. So a lot of people just assume that I'm just dealing in oil and gas, but actually the renewable energies thing has been a huge, huge deal for me out here lately. Um, and so, yeah, that's a huge part of what I've been doing lately. Good to know. So if you are looking for recreational land in West Texas and uh, or interested in exploring the possibilities of having a solar lease on your land, you know, talk to Wayne Dunson here. I'll have your uh, link in the profile uh, for the podcast. And uh, hey, man, I appreciate your time and your expertise. Mac, I appreciate your time, man. It's been fun. This concludes episode number 26 of the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing predator management with Texas land professional Wayne Dunson. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. Please like, review, and share our show. Our show doesn't get found if people don't talk about it and hit that like button. So if you found this show valuable, others will too. Make sure to share it. As we get reviews, we'll share them on the podcast. Now, thank you again, and we'll see you next time.